Thanks for downloading this week's episode of Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfner, and this week is a theological miscellany. We just do question and answer. We talk about the uh, Christian worship, uh, understanding the book of Revelation. What did the prophets know about what they were prophesying? Confession and absolution. Uh, what is repentance? The connection between the Lord's Supper and the Passover. We talk about it all this week. Stay tuned to Cross Defense. Hey, hey, welcome to the show. Who started the music? I wasn't ready to start the show yet. I guess it's time. That's how it goes with live radio. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, host of Cross Defense. Uh, we're coming at you every week talking about what you're trying to ignite our imagination with the truth and the confidence and the joy and beauty of the Lord's Word. That's what we're going to get after today. And to do that, we're going to uh, we're just going to do question and answer. All day today. Uh, now this is we haven't done this before, so this is a new thing. But I have this backlog of about about twelve, fifteen. I don't know. I printed out all my favorite questions, and so we're just gonna we're just gonna go by one by one and get after them. So if you want to, if you have a question, by the way, a theological question, or I suppose an anything else question, although this is a theology social, we're going to talk about theology. You can send that to me. I think the best way to do that is to go to the website wolfmuller.co. And there's a contact button, and you can go and you can send an email through that contact button, uh, and those all come to me, and I and I read them, uh, and I look at them. And while you're there, by the, we started something new this this week, and that is the verse of the week. So if you go to wolfmuller.co forward slash vow vow verse of the week, you'll find a link to a five minute Bible study on the verse of the week from this week's Around the Word Devotion. And uh, th- this week it's it's First uh, Peter three twenty one and twenty two. Baptism now saves you, not the washing of the filth of the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. And so we talk about that. We we do a grappling style. The video camera is on the is on the page, and so we talk about that as well. And that should be new every week. We'll try to get that updating on Sunday morning. Uh, that's wolfmuller.co slash V-O-W. But let's get to it. We're, gonna, we're just going to walk through uh, your questions uh, that you've got today. And we're going to start with, um, with this question from, uh, from Pastor Cody. Uh, Pastor Cody is doing a book study of Has American Christianity Failed? I wrote this little book, Has American Christianity Failed, uh, back in 2016 or so, uh, is when that book came out. And it's uh, it's examining the various tenets of American evangelicalism. And, uh, and Pastor Cody has a book study down there in Wichita Falls, Kansas, St. Paul Lutheran Church. So if you're hanging around St. Paul Lutheran Church in Wichita Falls, if you're hanging around Wichita Falls, Texas, you should go over there. Check it out. So here's their question. They ask, can you explain the difference in the way that Reformed or American evangelicals view repentance and the way that Lutherans view repentance? So what's the difference between Lutherans and evangelicals on repentance? Question two, can you clarify what you mean when you say repentance is being found by Jesus? Third, finally, can you explain briefly what the two parts of repentance are? This came from, this question comes from chapter 5 in the book where we say repentance is not what you think it's better. Thanks, uh, Pastor Cody. Well, Pastor Cody, thank you for the question. This is great. Three questions about repentance. So the first is, what's the difference between the way that most churches, American Christian churches, think of repentance and the way that the Lutheran church thinks of repentance? Here's the difference. Uh, most when you hear about repentance from most pulpits or, or most radio shows or books or something like that in American Christianity, the thing that they're talking about is 
uh, turning. In fact, they'll define repentance as this way. It's, it's doing a U-turn. The idea is I'm living a sinful life. I'm, I'm doing all sorts of sinful things. I'm doing this and that. And now I have to stop doing those sinful things, and i got to turn around, and i got to do those right things. i got to demonstrate my faith uh, in trust in Christ by my changed life. That's mostly how repentance is defined. And I think that idea of uh, the Christian life is, or repentance as U-turn is the main idea. Uh, the, the Lutheran doctrine is a little bit different. We say, and this is maybe to skip ahead to part three, that repentance is two things. It's first contrition, that is uh, hearing the preaching of God's law and that, and that preaching working conviction in my own heart, that I, that I know that I'm a sinner, uh, that I recognize that I've broken God's law, that I see that I've failed to uphold the standard that the Lord has put in front of me. And this comes along and it crushes our heart. A lot of times we feel it. Sometimes we don't. We just know it. But this is the first part of repentance. And then there's the second part of repentance, and that is faith. Trust in Christ and in his mercy and, and, in, his, and in the promise of forgiveness. Now, these are the two main parts of repentance. First, that God's law comes along and crushes me, and God's gospel comes along and lifts me up and encourages me and gives me faith. And then if we want to add a third part, we have the fruit of repentance, and that is the mind and the life that is changed from God's work of law and gospel. Now, it is amazing to note that American Christianity mostly understands the f repentance to be the fruit of repentance, whereas we understand that repentance is chiefly this the the work of the Holy Spirit in preaching God's law and God's gospel. And I think that's really what I want to get across with this idea that repentance. How did how did we say it in the book here? The question says repentance is being found by Jesus. That is that when God the Holy Spirit comes to do His work with us, preach the law to us, and break our hearts and preach the, go the gospel to us and bring our hearts back together, that that work of God is the gift of repentance. Now, it's important to note that repentance is a gift that God gives. There, we've, we see this a couple of times in the book of Acts, and I think these references are there, that it says that God grants repentance. There, psalm 80 is this beautiful psalm. It says, turn us, O Lord. It really, literally, it says, repent us, O Lord. We just don't have, we can't use repentance in that way in the English language. Turn us, O Lord, and we will be turned. So repentance is a gift that God gives to us. And chiefly, we have this beautifully laid out for us in the parables that Jesus tells in Luke. We have the three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And especially with the lost, just think about the lost sheep. The sheep wanders off from the fold, and Jesus uh, says that the shepherd leaves the 99 in the wilderness and goes after that one wandering sheep. And when the shepherd has found that sheep, he puts it on his shoulders, and he carries it home, and he calls together his neighbors, and he says, Rejoice with me, for the sheep that was lost has been found. And then Jesus says, There's more joy amongst the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. So that if when Jesus wants to give us a picture of repentance, it's the picture of a shepherd taking up a lost sheep and putting it on his shoulder and carrying it home. That's what I mean when I say that repentance is being found by Jesus. He comes and he finds us in our sin. He shows us our sin. He shows us his mercy, and he drags us home. That, that is a beautiful picture. 
of repentance. Thanks, Pastor Cody, for the question. All right, we're moving on. We got a lot of questions. We're going to see how many we can cover. This one uh, comes from, if you, it says, if you could use, you can use this, but don't, please don't use my name. So it says, hello, Pastor Wolfmuller. My friend who's a lifelong Lutheran, and I joke that I'm an LIT, Lutheran in training. I'm now an adult catechesis. I'm eager to learn as much as I can about God and the Bible from the Lutheran perspective. I'm writing because I have a question or suggestion for a topic of discussion. And because I'd like to tell you that your videos and audio resources have really helped me a lot. I'm a lifelong Pentecostal going Lutheran, and it's been a very difficult road so far. She continues, currently I'm, I'm, tack I'm trying to tackle the sacrament of the altar. And I think it would be really cool to hear about the history of the Passover and how those customs were replaced by what Jesus did on the cross, and how the customs are translated now in the sacrament of the altar, piece by piece. Uh, thanks for all the help. Uh, I hope to learn more about it. Sincerely, uh, your uh, listener here. So thank you. This is a, now, this is a great question. And how much time do we have, Ian? This is a great question to take up, and it's, and it's one of common theological reflection that people want to know what is the connection between the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper now there's a lot there so let's start this way we want to remember what the Passover was in the Old Testament as the Lord was rescuing his people from Egypt before he rescued them from Egypt he he gave he there was the there was the nine plagues and just on the cusp of the Lord bringing the people out he says I'm gonna put in place a special feast called the Passover. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to kill the lamb, and I want you to take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to paint it on your doorposts, on the top of the door, and going down along the side, and then roast the lamb and cook it. And there's a bunch of other stuff that he wants. I want you to make unleavened bread, not leavened bread. I don't want there to be any yeast in the house. Uh, here he gave The Lord gave them all these uh, these instructions, and he says, and when I come through the camp, I'll, I'll see the blood when I come through the village or the city. I'll see the blood, and I'll pass over the doorpost, and I won't kill the firstborn. That's why it's called the Passover. And the Lord said, when, when I've rescued you from Egypt, I want you to do this every year. It's, I think it's on the 15th of Nisan, the Jewish month, that every year they're supposed to do this as a perpetual memorial. And so that becomes the Passover feast, one of the major feasts of the seven major feasts of the, of the Jewish tradition. Now, this is really quite wonderful to recognize that when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he does it on the night of the Passover. They go and they celebrate the Passover in the upper room, and Jesus made preparations so that, so that, the, that this meal was happening on the same day that the, all the Jewish people all over the world were eating the Passover meal. Now, one parallel to note there before we dig in a little bit deeper, and that is this, is that just like in the Exodus, the Lord instituted the Passover feast, before the event that the Passover was to remember had even happened, so in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives us his body and his blood before the giving of his body and blood on the cross had happened. I mean, it's amazing that the Lord puts the Passover meal in place so that they could remember what the Lord does when he rescued them when he haven't even rescued them. It's like putting in the, it's like, uh, it, it's like, it's like celebrating a birthday before the person's even born. It's really quite wonderful. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, they were eating the Passover, and Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Now, this has led to a lot, a lot, a lot of theological discussion. All the old theologians like to talk about this. 
about what part of the Passover celebration is is being recognized when Jesus is giving out the Lord's Supper. And I, I think that for a handful of reasons, this is a bit of a wrong question. So, so for example, uh, even though it says uh, in Matthew and in Mark, it says while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. It, it's in, when he takes up the cup, it, he wants to make a clean break from the celebration of the Passover and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So it, it'll say, for example, in Luke 22, verse 20, it says, after they had supped, Jesus took the cup. So that there's a distinction between the eating of the Passover and the, and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. In fact, the, just the language that Jesus uses when he gives them the cup, he says, this is the cup of the New Testament. The Old Testament was really grabbed, I mean, it was bound up in the celebration of the Passover. But Jesus says, I'm giving you a New Testament now. And in Hebrews 8, uh, uh, teaches us that when Jesus says New Testament, that the Old Testament has become obsolete and has faded away. Another chi, uh, chief and key, chi. <laughs> Another key difference is that when it comes to the Passover, Jesus says, "Do this often in remembrance of me," whereas the Passover was to be celebrated was to be celebrated yearly. And and maybe one of the uh, more things to think about in this line is that if Jesus was, for example, if he wanted to just take up the symbol of the Passover and transfer it to the Lord's Supper, instead of taking the bread, he would have taken the lamb. He would have said, this is my body. Because the lamb of the Passover was preaching the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I mean, what 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 better, more clear preaching of the gospel is there in the Old Testament? That the lamb will be sacrificed and his blood will be the thing that rescues us from death. Just absolutely stunning. And so that Passover was preaching the death of the lamb to come. But now that the lamb has come, now that the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has been sacrificed, his blood has been spilled, now it just needs to be distributed. So Jesus says, this is the cup of the New Testament, which is in my blood. Uh, which is for you for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe a couple more notes since we're in the region here, and that is to say that when the text says this is the New Testament, almost every single mm, modern English version says covenant. You could read the New King James or the ESV or the NIV or the uh, ENRSV or any, any of them. They almost all say covenant. The King James, though, is right here when it says testament. Now, what's the difference between a covenant and a testament? Well, this is outlined for us in Hebrews, but a covenant goes until the person who made the covenant dies. Marriage, for example, is a covenant, till death us do part, and then the covenant is broken. A testament doesn't start until the person dies, like a will. So the covenant goes until the death, and the, and the testament starts at death. That's why we talk about the Old Covenant and the New Testament. The Old Covenant God made with Abraham, and it doesn't end until God dies. The New Testament, that's Jesus giving out the benefits of his death to all those who would benefit by it. Maybe, maybe one more thing, since we're on the topic here, and, and, we're, and we're talking about it. When it comes to the difference between, for example, the Pentecostal view of the Lord's Supper and the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper, it's really quite wonderful. The Lutherans come along and say, when Jesus says, this is my body, we say, all right. Sound, sounds good. I don't know how it's your body, but if you say it, it's going to be your body. And when he says, this is the cup of the New Testament poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, we say, all right. The Lord's Supper gives the forgiveness of sins. It delivers that promised forgiveness to us. And we, it's our job not to understand it, but to rejoice in it. So I hope that's helpful.
uh, there. That's for you. Uh, let's see. We got a hmm. we got a handful more. Qu- oh, we got a lot more questions. But Ian's telling me the clock's counting. I think we can go to the break now, Ian. We'll take a break now, and we'll line up three or four more questions to come after the break. Again, if you wanna if you wanna send me a question, maybe we'll do this more often. You can find the contact form wolfmuller.co. Click on the contact button there, and. Uh, and, hey, while you're there, check out the Verse of the Week, wolfmuller.co slash V-O-W, or click on Video Verse of the Week, and you'll find a weekly little devotional video Bible study on this week's Verse of the Week. Stay with me through the break. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, you're listening to Cross Defense. We'll be right back. This week on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Anthony Esselin about spiritual egalitarianism. We'll discuss the black Hebrew Israelite movement with Jimmy Butts. We'll have Pastor Jeff Hemmer lead us in a teaching on the season of Lent. And we'll talk with Dr. Keith Whitfield about sex abuse among Southern Baptists. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen tells us, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. That's why weekday mornings at 8 a.m., two Missouri Synod pastors test their metal against the Holy Scriptures, certain that not only will they come out better for it, but so will you. The sword of the Spirit is sharp to the touch, but you need practice wielding it. Check out Sharper Iron, 8 a.m., every weekday on Worldwide KFUO. This week on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We'll preview the March Lutheran Witness about life together with managing editor Rachel Baumberger. And we'll talk with Pastor Greg Truey about the second annual marriage and family conference. We'll meet some extraordinary Lutheran school alumni. And we'll head to Lutheran camps to help parents plan for an outdoor summer tradition. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. The story of Worldwide KFUO is a tale of technology. Radio was new in 1924 when KFUO was born to serve Christ the Savior. Now, KFUO is still finding new broadcast technologies so we can spread the gospel to the world via the web, smartphones, tablets, and new intelligent speaker devices. And when the next big thing is unveiled, we'll be there too. Broadcasting the good news at the forefront of technology. We are Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back to Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Colorado. We're taking your questions and offering answers. This is great. But it's I got I'm trying to keep them all straight here. Uh, I got I got look, I got lined up a few more. Did the prophets know what they were prophesying about in the Old Testament? How can we help better understand the book of Revelation? What about the armor of God? We got all these questions lined up, but here's one. In fact, here's two questions that are revolving around the same topic. By the way, if you want to uh, check or you want to send me some questions. The website is Wolfmuller. It's W O L F M U E L L E R dot C O, like Colorado. Uh, Wolfmuller dot C O, and you can hit the contact button. That's the best way to get a hold of me. I read all those emails that come in there, and a lot of these were submitted that way. Here's two questions. Uh, let's see if I can use your. Yeah, this is from Josh who asks. 
Can you talk about confession and absolution and deal with how we receive forgiveness? And then, uh, uh, oh, wait, that's the, sorry, printed out the question twice. Josh asked twice, can you talk about confession and absolution? The answer is, Josh, I can. Confession and absolution is it taught to us in the Bible in three different ways, quite wonderfully. Christians confess their sins. That's the first thing. Christians confess their sins. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1. And the confession that the Bible talks about is in really probably two chief different ways. First is every Christian confesses their sin to God, number one. Number two, every Christian confesses their sin to the person that they sinned against. James has this advice, if you sin against one another, forgive one another, and so forth. So whenever we are found sinning against someone, we go and we confess our sin to them. We apologize. We do what we can to make it right. We ask for their forgiveness. and We don't demand forgiveness. Of course, the forgiveness is free to give uh, for the person that's offended by us and so forth. So, so those two types of confession the Scriptures uh, require. There's a third type of confession that grows up out of the Lord's gift of absolution that we are uh, talk about in the church, and that is private or individual confession and absolution. And that's where a person who does something wrong goes to their pastor or goes to a Christian friend and says, hey, this thing that I did is really troubling me. It's just, it's stuck in my conscience uh, what does the Lord have to say about it? It's when, it's when the it's when the silent or or private uh, the individual sort of in our minds or at night as we confess our sins to God we confess and we know that the Lord is merciful. But sometimes those particularly bad things that we've done or or whatever it doesn't even have to be particularly bad. Some of our sins just it, they stick to our conscience like peanut butter sticks to the to the roof of the dog's mouth. It's just it gets lodged in there like a splinter. And our guilty conscience is, is just troubling. Now, my, my rule of thumb on when to, when to go to private confession, again, it's not, it's not required of the Scriptures, but it's, given, it's, it's taught to us in the Scriptures, especially John 20. I'll, I'll show you that text in a minute. Uh, but, uh, uh, but a good rule of thumb of when to go to private confession, when to go to see your pastor and say, hey, can you absolve my sins, uh, is when, when you go to church and you're reflecting on your own sinfulness and a particular sin comes to your mind three weeks in a row. Now, that's just a rule of thumb that I think is helpful, but it's reminding us if that thing is lodged in there, if that sin keeps floating to the top, then we want to we address it specifically. Now, I remember, I'll tell you guys a story. I remember the first time that I went to a liturgical church, Lutheran church, and there was this guy dressed in a white robe standing up in front. One of the first things that happens is we all said, hey, we're all sinners, and then this and he says, I forgive you all your sins. And I'd never, I mean, maybe I'd heard that before, but I certainly hadn't paid attention to it. And I thought to myself at this, I said, what does, who does that guy think he is? I forgive you all your sins? That's what God does, not what some chump fella does. And so I was, you know, kind of huffy the whole time, and I went up uh, after the service, and, and I said, uh, we, had, we had gone to a couple of classes with the guy, so I knew him, and I said, hey, now, wait, 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 who, what is this business of you forgiving sins? What, what's going on when you say you, you, you forgive sins? 
and he looked down and he was it was on the way out of church and he noticed I had a Bible with me and he says, "Can I, can I see your Bible?" And this was the this is the best thing he could have done. He opened my Bible. I think if he would have showed me this verse in his Bible, I would have thought that's a trick, some sort of trick Lutheran Bible. But he but he opened the the Bible to John chapter twenty, and he says he says look here and he pointed to verse twenty one. This is on Easter when Jesus is raised and he goes in to see his disciples. There's ten of them that are there. And he says, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, you are retained. They are retained. It's just fantastic. It's just, this is what we're doing. When I say, it's, Jesus doesn't say, If 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 I forgive the sins of any, they are retained. He says, if you forgive the sins of any. So that he gives this peculiar and unique authority to forgive sins to his church, to his apostles, and to the and to the Christians. This is the gift that the Lord gives to us in baptism. So that we have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Now that what what so what happens is that when there's a particular sin that's particularly bothering us, that's particularly stuck in the conscience, the Lord Jesus has given us this great gift that we can confess that sin and we can hear the absolution. It's one of my great joys as a pastor to stand in front of the Lord's people here at Hope Lutheran Church and say, I forgive you all your sins. And, and it's a great joy to hear it. Uh, Luther was writing about this and he said, he said, the absolution is such a great treasure that I would, I would walk a hundred miles to hear it. Uh, the, the Lutheran theologian Philip Melanchthon said that we retain the practice of confession and absolution for the sake of the absolution. Now, some people say, well, what is the difference between you Lutherans and the Roman Catholics? They, after all, have the confessional booth where you go and you confess your sins and the priests uh, gives you an, uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, you you got to do a penance and then you get the absolution as well. Well, we, this is, I think, the explained especially in this statement by Melanchthon. We keep the practice of confession and absolution for the sake of the absolution. I remember, and here's a story of my great shame. I remember I was speaking at a conference a couple years ago, and I was on a I was on a panel, and on the panel with me was a Catholic, and I made the claim that the Lutheran Church is the only church with the absolution, and the Catholic says, "Now wait, wait, wait a minute." I go to confession, and my priest says just about the same thing that you said. Isn't that the absolution? And I was responding to this, and I was kind of hemming and hawing about satisfaction and con the difference the Catholics have between contrition and attrition and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it was, uh, I just I made a mistake. Here's what I should have done. Oh, to rewind time. What I should have done is I should have said, if you were to walk out of the confessional booth and drop dead right there, your heart just stopped and you fell over dead, and now you go to judgment. Would you enter into the beatific vision because of the words and promises that the priest spoke to you? Now, the Catholic has to say, no, that's not the case, because the thing that's being forgiven is the particular sin that's being confessed. But we retain this practice for the sake of the absolution, where the Lord gives us, he forgives everything. He can, in the, when the gospel is preached, when sins are forgiven, it's not just the single sin, it's all sins that are forgiven. There's a completeness to the forgiveness that comes to us in the absolution. And so when we go and we confess even one sin and we hear the absolution, we know that it's not even that sin, but it's all of our sins that are being forgiven.
Psalm 19 says, forgive us of our hidden faults. Oh, so that even the sins we don't even know about, the Lord is covering with his mercy. Ah, how fantastic. Good question, Josh. All right, let's keep going. We got a lot of questions. Um, whoo, here's a fun one. Uh, here's the, this question that says this. Pastor Wolfmuther, did the prophets know about what they were prophesying? This is a great question. because It has to do with how we read the Bible and especially how we read the Old Testament. We, we, we a lot of times think that the prophets in the Old Testament, we know that they were that they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter says, that the, that the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets to say what they were saying. But did they understand it? For example, when, when Isaiah preaches about the virgin birth, did he understand what he was saying? Or when Moses says that when he hears that God will raise up a prophet like you from among your brethren, did he understand what was being said? Or when Micah was talking about Bethlehem, did he understand what was happening? Or when, uh, when, when, when David was praying Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he understand what was happening? That's a great, and I think this is an important question, because I think a lot of times we just assume that the prophets didn't know. They were like in a trance. Like some sort of shami sort of thing, like they were, they were just sort of ch like uh like when you see these horror movies and like someone's possessed and they they just say something and they don't even know what they're saying, Ooh, something like that. Th th but this is not how the prophets were, and I want to prove it to you. This is a key text for understanding the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament, and it's in Peter's Pentecost sermon. For those of you following along at home, it's Acts chapter 2, starting in, uh, let's just start in verse 24. Well, let's see, 23. Well, let's see, 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that, she, that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, therefore I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad, moreover my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of joy in your presence. Psalm 16. Now, listen to what Peter says about this. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. It's, in fact, the tomb of David is still there now, but I'm not reading, I'm, I'm telling you. The tomb of David is still in Jerusalem, and when we were there, there had been some sort of, oh, this is a couple summers ago, and they had someone had come along, and there was like some protest at the tomb of David, and so we were in the upper room, which is right next to the tomb of David, and, and we started singing a, a communion hymn, and the guard came over with a gun and told us to be quiet because they thought we were protesting. Anyway, tomb of David still there. Uh, Peter continues, uh, verse 30, Acts chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his body, talking about David, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. 
he, that is David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So th this, this is the thing that I, I want to uh, pick up in here, that David foresaw all of these things. David foresaw that the Christ would be born of his flesh. David foresaw that the Messiah would be killed and would be raised and would be seated at the right hand of heaven. David saw these things, and therefore he prophesied about them. It's not like David didn't know what he was saying. David precisely did know what he was saying. And this is so important for our understanding of the prophets, that the prophets knew what they were talking about, that the prophets, that the prophets knew what was going on when they were given these prophecies, which is so nice to think about that if you were around when Isaiah was preaching and he's saying, hey, virgin birth, you could go say, what, what, hey, what? What, are you talking, what? what do you mean? What are you talking about? And so forth. Uh, so that you could go and, and they could explain it to you. They could tell you exactly what's going on, that Micah, when he was prophesying about Bethlehem, knew that he was prophesying about the Messiah. That, that, that even Moses, he knew that they, these prophets knew these things. By faith, they held on to these things, and they spoke concerning the things that they knew. Now, they knew, Hebrews 11 tells us, they knew in part, not fully, and yet they knew. Great question. All right, next one. Before the break, we got like three minutes. Uh, Jay writes, how do you respond when someone says, communion every other week makes it more special? This is a good question. There, there's a question about how often we should have the Lord's Supper. Jesus didn't give us a rule and say, have the Lord's Supper every day or every Sunday or every whatever, every time you get together, this sort of thing. And so the church has to figure out what we mean by uh, often. And the, the normal practice of the church for the last 2,000 years has been to have the Lord's Supper uh, weekly. There, there's a little line, like the old Lutheran guys 500 years ago says, we practice, we have the Lord's Supper every week and every feast day. That was the, the, the common practice. When the church started coming to the United States, um, it, there, was a, there was a decrease in the frequency of the Lord's Supper. A lot of my old members here at Hope talk about how they remember when they used to have supper, the Lord's Supper, only four times a year. And this came from the old law somewhere. They, some Luther says, if you don't have the Lord's Supper at least four times a year, then you've got to wonder if you're a Christian. And so they said, well, we better have it four times a year. It seems like that's going the wrong way. But generally, well, I don't know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, there was the practice of having the Lord's Supper uh, every other week. And... Some churches have been moving towards more frequent reception of the Lord's Supper. And as they're making that move, one of the objections to it that comes up is this, that if you have the supper more often, it won't be as special. Let me see, is that the language that... Yeah, Jay uses that language. Communion every other week makes it more special. In other words, the less that you have something, the more special it will be. Now, I'm not sure... I mean, I suppose that in some way applies to our life in this world. If you went out for steak and lobster every night, then you'd pretty quickly get bored of steak and lobster. It wouldn't be that big of a deal. In, in, our, in our human life, the, the rareness of something adds to its specialty. It's a sort of supply and demand sort of thing. But spiritually, things work differently. If I, for example, if I eat a huge meal that the... The, the 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 result is that I'm satiated or I'm full so that so that with our stomachs we have 
we have desire and satisfaction and they they're like on a seesaw so i'm i'm very very hungry i'm not satisfied <laughs> and then when i'm not hungry i am satisfied that's this this a seesaw that goes like this this is how it is in this earthly life if i'm if i'm sleepy then i'm not rested and once i'm rested i'm not sleepy so if i desire sleep it's not because i'm well rested and so forth when it comes to our physical life there's a way that something is made special by being less frequent but there, there's a there's a mystery a spiritual truth there that is the opposite and that is that um, that spiritual desire and spiritual satisfaction uh, go together like this so that so that the just to take the Lord's Word the more I study the Lord's Word the more I desire to study the Lord's Word that that the gifts of God create a desire for more of the gifts of God. Now, this is hopeful because when we think of heaven, for example, we think of having all of the gifts of God there, and we, but we won't. We'll be both satisfied and also hungry at the same time, and that and that's also a, a true thing that I've discovered just pr very practically about the Lord's Supper. That the more often I have the Lord's Supper, the more I desire the supper. The more I long for the supper, the more I crave the, the body and blood and the forgiveness of sins. So that when, in, in, in spiritual terms, it, doesn't, it works differently than in earthly terms. Uh, and, we, and we see this, for example, in the Psalms, he will give us the desires of our heart and so forth and so on. So I, so I think I would, if someone, Jay, to answer your question, if someone's asking uh, or saying communion every other week makes it more special, I'd say, well, that might be true of a fancy meal on earth, but with the heavenly meal, it... Uh, it, uh, the the more we have it, the more we rejoice in it. We've got to go to the break. Maybe one more quick word on that before we do. And that is to say that the specialness of the supper does not come from my being able to recognize it as special, but from the gift that the Lord Jesus gives. When Jesus says, this is my body, he's saying this is special, and it's special if we know it or not. So the thing is not to make our practice uh, our practice doesn't make the supper what it is. The Lord's Word is what makes the supper what it is, and we want our practice and our experience of it to be catching up to what he says about it. All right, good questions. We got some. We got this. How do you read the book of Revelation? A question about the armor of God. A, per, a question about the virginity of Mary. We're going to take all those up after the break, so stick with me. We'll be right back. You're listening to Cross Defense. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for me. Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. Hello, this is Dale Meyer, and I'm the host of Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work, an Intersection. It airs weekly on Thursday afternoons at 2 o'clock Central Time, right here on KFUO. Together, we'll discover how the Word of God applies to daily life as we go about our various vocations. Be sure to tune in each week for an interesting discussion taking place at the intersection of Word and Work. 
Thank you for being cross defense listeners. I really appreciate your attention. I want to. This is the, really the last week for this uh, announcement. So thanks for your attention on this. But we're going to Spain this summer. We're going to go study the Book of Romans, visit the missionaries there, see the country of Spain. We got about six spots open, and those spots will close this week. So if you'd like to join us in Spain, the summer of. 2019, then please uh, let me know. You can find out more at our website, wolfmuller.co slash Spain 2019, or just go to the website. You can see it under the travel button. We'd love to have you join us this year. Thanks. Hey, and you keep starting the Keep starting the show before I'm ready. I'm trying to manage all these questions flying around here. Here is one that this is going to take a little bit of time. So let's start with the beginning. You're listening to Cross Defense, by the way. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church. I'm answering questions submitted on Facebook and also via the website, wolfmuller.co. There's a contact button. And we just started this this week. We have a new verse of the week thing. It's a new thing. We'll see how it goes. But the idea is to take the verse of the week from the Around the World Devotions and do a little video Bible study. So there's a little five-minute video Bible study on uh, 1 Peter 3, Baptism Now Saves You. What a verse that is. So you can go check out wolfmuller.co forward slash vow. V-O-W stands for verse of the week. Here's a question. Pastor Wolfmuller, could you help me with my understanding of the book of Revelation? American evangelicals read this as an unfolding of the history of the last days. How do Lutherans understand it? <laughs> Good question. I, I love this question. And I'm going to give you one, two, three, four keys or four hints. I, I think I've got more somewhere, but these are the four that I remembered uh, during the extra mega short break that Ian gave me there. These are the four that I remember uh, to, to help to get into the book of Revelation and what's going on there. Number one, Revelation 1 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we go to the book of Revelation, when we go to the revelation of Jesus, we say, well, what is being revealed? The word, by the way, for revelation is the word apocalypse, apocalypso in Greek, with calypso means the veil or the covering, like the tablecloth or a veil that a, a bride would wear, and the apo is from, so it's from the veil. It's an, un, it's an unveiling like this. And, and what is being unveiled? I, I by the way, I don't know. I've always wanted to, you know, the part of the wedding when the bride comes down and there's the and there's the dad uh, and the dad uh, takes the veil off of the bride. And I want to say oh, that was a beautiful apocalypse. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think that that would actually that would actually work. I'm not sure the bride would appreciate that. But that's the point. The apocalypse is the unveiling. So if we want to understand the book of Revelation, we want to say, what's being unveiled? What's being apocalypsed? And the answer is from verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, it's a revelation of Jesus. So that's the first key to understanding the book of Revelation, is that it's a revelation of Jesus. Second, it says the things which must shortly take place. And that is going to be another key thing, and that is to understand that the book of Revelation is a book for, for all the churches of all time. It's not like the book of Revelation is something that's just for the church at the very end. 
This is one of the mistakes that American evangelicals make when they read the book of Revelation. They, they see it was like a hidden book or a closed book until you get to the very end of time, and now all of a sudden it starts to make sense. No, it's, it's, a, it's a book of comfort for the church of all time. We see that in the very fact that Jesus in the first three chapters writes letters to churches that existed then. He, he wants this revelation to be a revelation of, his, of himself for all Christians at all times. Now, the third thing, and here we're going to get into the weeds a little bit, but it'll be all right. You guys can track with me. And that is that we want to watch the movement or the location of the things that are happening. We want to, and specifically this, we want to watch if we're if we're on earth or if we're in heaven. And here and here is the major sort of contours of the book of Revelation. Uh, John is being uh, Jesus is being unveiled but but the Lord is also unveiling all of these spiritual truths about why things are working the way they are in the world. You have the beast and the false prophet and all of these things that are being unveiled and and so and so John is being seen the sort of the political and the economic and the spiritual persecution of the church. He's being shown the the spiritual impulses of all the bad things that are happening at that time and in times to come. In other words, he's getting it's like he's seeing the the wizard behind the curtain. Remember the wizard of Oz and you see the big powerful but then there's who's who's pulling the levers? Who's making So John gets to see behind the curtain who's pulling all of these levers and it's bad. I mean, when he's seeing all these things happening on earth, there's, there's seals being broken and there's rivers of blood and there's the, the, the stars are falling out of the sky and everything is falling to bits. And, and, and as John sees how bad things are in this life and the spiritual forces that are making things so bad in this life, he, he has to think to himself, we do too, is, could it be, who, who's in charge? Who's on the throne? Could it, I thought Jesus was on the throne, but could it be that the devil is on the throne? That Jesus has left the throne? That he's abandoned the throne? That he's not there anymore? And just when it gets so bad, then whoosh, the, the angel takes John into the heavenly throne room and gives him the vision of heaven. And sure enough, every time there on the throne is the lamb as, he was been, as he's been slain. So John says, okay, I got it. The lamb is still on the throne. And then back down to earth for more trumpets and more bowls and more seals and more thunders and more horses and more tragedy and the beast, the prostitute riding on the beast to attack it and locusts and swarms. And just when he's got to think, man, oh, man, now the lamb must be off of the throne, then whoosh, back up to heaven. And sure enough, the lamb's on the throne. And then back down to earth and things are falling apart and the world is falling over and nobody's even alive and everything's just disaster after disaster and then whoosh back up to heaven back to check on the throne and sure enough the lamb is there now this is the this is the thing of this is what revelation is doing is it's it's teaching us to it's teaching us to trust that no matter how bad things get now how how what a mess things look like there and when we look when we watch the news and when we look outside and we, we see things falling apart in the world and we say, Man, who's in charge around here? Then the revelation carries us also up into heaven to say, Look, there's Jesus seated on the throne. <laughs> this is great. So that so note so that when you're reading the book of Revelation, pay attention to where you are. And fourth, pay attention to what you hear and what you see. 
Because what will happen in the book of Revelation, this is really quite a wonder, is that you'll hear something and you'll see something, and there'll be two different ways of describing the same thing. I'll, I'll just give you one example. In Revelation chapter 7, it gives us the vision of the 144,000, 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes. And it says, I heard, this is Revelation 7 verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then, verse 9, so after it has a list, verse 9 it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great number, a multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, etc., etc. So that he heard the number, 144,000. He looked and he saw an innumerable multitude. And the point is, those are those are the same thing. What he hears described and what he sees are the same thing. It's the church, but it's from two different perspectives. The 144,000 is the church according to God's view, and the innumerable multitude is the church according to our view. Let me show you that again in chapter 5. Oh, he's there at the throne of God, and there's a scroll, and it's written on front and on back, and it's sealed. And John knows that this is important, that this scroll gets opened, but no one was able to find who to, was on earth or under the earth was able to, to open the scroll or even to look at it. So I'm picking up in Revelation 5, verse 4. It says, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. But then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose the seven seals. So he hears, and he says, don't worry, there's one who can loose the seals. I hear his name. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then, verse 6, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though he had been slain. So he hears Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he looks and he sees the lamb. Now, that lion and that lamb is the same person. It's Jesus, seen from different perspectives, seen from the perspective of the resurrection and, and, and his divinity. He is the one who has conquered, seen from the, from the perspective of the gospel. It, he is the lamb who was sacrificed, but it's describing the same reality. So that's rule number four. So the four rules that we have today, how, how do you understand the book of Revelation? Number one, recognize that it's a revelation of Jesus. Number two, recognize that the revelation is for the church of all people of all time number three note where you are if you're watching the things unfolding in heaven or on earth and then number four look at this difference between the hearing of a thing and seeing of a thing it's and 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 let that artistically be blended together all right good question we got a couple more um here's one how much time do we have this oh looking at the, the clock is the let's see if we can get this one this is from emily who writes would you be able to do to talk about how to rightly understand christian worship this is what i'm confused by a worldly understanding of worship teaches me that the worshiper is giving homage to the one being worshiped but i think that christian understanding is that christ is giving us his gifts but he is the one being worshiped Hopefully the question makes sense. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. This is a oh, three minutes. This is a great question when we talk about worship. Now, there's two ways to understand worship. 
Um, Philip Melanchthon in the Lutheran Confessions breaks it down for us very simply like this. There's the worship of the law, which is us giving thanks and praise to God. And there's the worship of the gospel, which is God giving us his gifts. So that the chief, so there's the worship of love and there's the worship of faith. There's the worship of giving and there's the worship of receiving. Most people treat worship only as giving. What is worship? I'm standing before God and I'm giving him my praise. I'm giving him my affection. I'm giving him the glory. I'm giving him these things. Now that's true. That is part of worship. But it's, it's not the only part of worship. And it's not the chief part of worship. The chief part of worship is that the Lord Jesus is giving us his gifts, his mercy, his kindness, his love, his blood, his forgiveness, his promises, his smile, his kingdom, his spirit, all of these things. So that Jesus says, I am among you, not as one, I, I did not come among you to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In that text we were looking at at the very beginning of the show when Jesus is giving the Lord's Supper. He says, who's greater, the one that sits at the table or the one who serves? And yet I am among you as the one who serves. So the chief act of worship is Jesus coming to us to give us the gifts of salvation. His, his promised forgiveness, the victory that he won for us on the cross. That's the chief and primary act of worship. And then, and then we react to that. We thank him and praise him and stand in awe of him, not only because of how strong he is, but because of how weak he is. Not only because he lives forever, but because he died on the cross. Not only because he created everything, but most especially because he redeemed us. He took on our flesh and blood and our sin to suffer in our place to give us the grace of God. And that is the chief understanding of the Christian form of worship. Thank you, Emily, for the question. Hey, this has been a lot of fun, taking your questions. If you've got more theological questions, you can, you can send them to me, wolfmuller.co. Click the contact button, send the, send the questions, and maybe we'll do this again sometime. And while you're there, look at the, at the Verse of the Week video, a new little Bible study that we're doing for the Verse of the Week. This is, well, this is Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, coming at you every week, igniting, well, I hope, it's my prayer, that we're igniting your imagination with the truth of the Lord's Word. Th th to know that, huh, that when the devil tries to tempt us to be bored with theology, man, that he's barking up the wrong tree with us because there's nothing more wonderful, more glorious, and more beautiful than the truth of our Lord Jesus, crucified and raised for us. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense. Talk to you again next week. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thank you guys so much for being Cross Defense listeners. I really appreciate it. And if you have more questions, I think we'll try this again sometime. So you can send me those questions. You go to the website, wolfmuller.co, and click the contact and send me the questions there and we'll try to we'll try to answer them all in turn if you enjoyed this format please do 
uh, let me know. It's really fantastic. And stay tuned. We'll look forward to talking to you again next week.